Well, greetings everyone and welcome to the 2007 Feast of Tabernacles, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this glorious time where we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. You know, the reality will far surpass the expectation. The hope will be exceeded by that which shall come to pass. What will the expectation be? What is the hope? It is what you and I have lived for, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. Whether we or anyone else believes it or not, does not matter to God. He's going to bring it to pass, either with us or without us. And so as we gather here at the Feast of Tabernacles 2007, let us consider the wonderful millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Let's start by turning to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, here we have a, a section of scripture from, from chapter 40 through to about 44, where the greatness of God, His majesty and His power are constantly alluded to. He almost taunts the reader and says, well, where were you when I said this? And where were you when I did that? Who do you think you are? He says the nations are as a drop in the bucket. And so here in Isaiah chapter 42, part of this section in verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice, the villages like Kedar's inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing and let them shout from the top of the mountains. God's greatness and glory is beyond our real expectations and understandings. We really cannot know as the weak, you know, futile human beings that we are just exactly who and what God is. Let's now go to chapter 44, just a, a couple of chapters uh, further on, where the same sort of theme is carried on. It says in chapter 44 in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let him show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declare it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So what we can see here is that God, when he speaks, speaks from a position of power, authority, absolute assurance as to who he is and what he is going to do in the future. You know, weak, feeble politicians make promises that they can never keep. People hope for things that never come to pass. But the great God in heaven 
has set a plan in motion that will come to its absolute fulfillment during the 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. What's this got to do with you and with me? Well, I think we realize and understand that we have advanced knowledge that this world does not have. We are in possession of facts and details that if the world knew now, they would change their course. But it puts upon us a great responsibility because to whom much is given, much is required. And so as we gather here for the Feast of Tabernacles to worship God and to think about Him, to consider His greatness and His goodness, there goes with it this sobering responsibility that we have to respond to what we hear and what we learn. But you know, God is a patient and a loving and a merciful God. He understands that we have short memories. He understands that the, the pressures of life impact upon us and we sometimes forget Him, but He never forgets us. And so here today, we're going to be studying and reading some scriptures. We're going to be looking at the incredible plan that God has for mankind and our part. What we're going to do on this day and in this sermon is to weave a tapestry of prophetic vision about the millennium. We're going to put together the scriptures from all over the Bible that will inspire us to be prepared for that great day, the great day of God, the millennial reign of Christ, that 1,000 year Sabbath of rest which God is going to bring to all of mankind. The scripture that we all love to read on this day and at this time uh, is Isaiah chapter 11 verse 6. So, you know, it, the sermon would not be complete if we did not refer to the scripture. And uh, I know when <coughs> I go to the Feast of Tabernacles, I expect the scripture to be read. <coughs> I look forward to it being read. And thankfully I have the privilege and opportunity here today to read it. You'll probably hear it again if you've not already heard it in a sermonette already or, or the sermon uh, that precedes this one. So let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 6. It says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And then it goes on. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Notice verse 9. Beautiful scripture. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea a beautiful scripture, a picture for the world tomorrow. But you know, there's more within these words than just the words that we read here, the picture that we paint. Because I think you can see implicit within these words are a change of nature. Yes, a change of nature for the bear and the lion and the leopard. 
And so we look forward to a time when not just the nature of animals are changed, but the nature of human beings. Because you see, the aggressiveness, the competitiveness that we find and see in some animals, we have within us too. And so we look forward to a time when that nature that we have at this time on this earth will also be changed. So this scripture really does refer to not just a changing of the nature of animals, but the change, a changing of the nature of the whole world. The whole world will be changed. Everything will work in harmony, in peace. And why will this happen? And how will this happen? Well, you know, the first few verses of this same chapter give us a key to it. Let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 11 here, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Did you get that? Wisdom and counsel, knowledge and fear of the Lord. All of these things will come when Jesus Christ returns. He will bring that spirit and that nature from heaven with him. And he will give that spirit and that nature to his servants. And they in turn will take that out and that spirit of justice and love and equity will replace the spirit of injustice and inequity. It will replace the spirit of competition with a spirit of cooperation. Once again, you and I are privileged to know this at this time. Notice verse 3. Speaking of Jesus Christ, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears, but with righteousness He shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with his breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. That's, of course, that period preceding. Verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So they're the scriptures that lead up to what we read about the, the lion and the lamb, the leopard and the, and the goat. Now, think for a moment about our nature. Think for a moment about the way we conduct our lives. Yes, if we're baptized, we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Yes, we pray daily. We ask God to help us overcome. Yes, we do change. But you know and I know that within us is a nature that is only a hairbreadth away from snapping in an angry response, a selfish thought, an illicit thought, we're only just a moment away from sin. That's why it says in, our, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, that sin that does so easily beset us. I've often said, round unleavened bread time, do any of us have to sit back and, and, and work hard at, uh, at you know, sinning? Do we have to say, oh, I'm going to have to really try hard and work hard here to sin? Uh, sin comes easily. But God's way and His Spirit and His life and the way that He thinks, when that comes to us through His Holy Spirit and it is able to 
take away the influence of our human nature, then we are preparing for the job that God has got in store for us in the wonderful world tomorrow. You know, that's an expression that many of us first heard when we first came into the church, the wonderful world tomorrow. Well, you know, those three words have never lost their impact on myself and I'm sure they've never lost their impact on you either. And so here on this day, as we begin the Feast of Tabernacles, as we're getting ready to live the next seven days, uh, right the way out till the end of the last great day, we are excited about the fact that we can spend this time imbibing of a way of thinking and a way of acting that is yet future, that is millennial, that is of God's kingdom and not of the kingdom of this world. So let's consider a little more here in God's Word just exactly what He had in mind when He called each one of us. I'd like us to go to Acts chapter 3. I remember a little bit of a background to this scripture. In 1966, Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Armstrong visited Australia. I was just new in the church. I was... uh, I was just um, a young man, well, I was still a teenager, and there was a special Bible study that we had while Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were visiting Sydney. And I remember going up there, and Mr. Armstrong began the service, the Bible study. He said, please write down for me the most important scripture in the Bible. Well, I sat there for a while, and I thought, ah, John 3.16. You see, I'd come from a good Presbyterian background where John 3.16 was the most important scripture. And other people thought, and they wrote it down, and he said, well, what did you write down? Did you write down John 3.16? I thought, great, (laughs) I got it right. He said, well, it's not John 3.16. Ah. He said, it's Acts chapter 2, sorry, uh, Acts chapter 3 and in verse 19. And he turned there, and he read it. He said, Repent therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing, or as it says in the King James, the times of restitution, may come from the presence of the Lord. I thought to myself, is that the most important scripture? And he didn't even put emphasis on the word repent, he put emphasis on the times of refreshing or the times of restitution. And then he read on in verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom the heavens must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And he said, that's the most important scripture in the Bible. You know, as time has gone by, I can see why he did that and why he said that. Because if you think about it, God had a plan of salvation for mankind, but he had to give Adam and Eve the power of choice. And they made the wrong choice. But thankfully, he had already anticipated that. And so when the whole world went into a period of following the ways of Adam and Eve, and they in turn, their children, rebelled against God, so it was that the world was turned upside down. 
What was good became evil, and what was evil became good in the eyes and the thoughts of men, many people. And so it was that when this scripture was read by Mr. Armstrong, I started to realize that's why I've been called. I wasn't called, and you were not called, to save your own spiritual skin. You were not called to be saved. Yes, that's part of the process, but the real reason that you and I were saved is to be a part of the restoration of all things. We are a part of it. And once we see that that's how God thinks and that's where his focus is, it goes from personal salvation to understanding that the whole world needs to be saved and that our part and our role is to think like God, to be like God, to react like God reacts and to do things his way. Now when we see when we have the same goal that God has and we make ourselves willing and submissive servants of his, then we will go where he sends us. We will do as he asks. We will answer to his call. And we will make ourselves a part of the great plan of God for the restoration and the restitution of all things. And we begin with ourselves. And we say, God, where do I need to restore that which, is, that which was originally good in his plan for the, for the whole universe? Where can I restore myself to that way of thinking? Mr. Armstrong used to often refer to the give way as opposed to the get way. That means a total change of mind where you don't think for yourself to get what you want for yourself, but you rather think, <clears throat> what can I give to others? It's really, let me explain how it translates itself into our everyday life. When we become God-centered and we start to think like God thinks, it moves us away from our thinking to the way God thinks and we do things from a different motivation. See, we're surrounded by our relatives, our friends, our neighbours and a lot of the time, even though we might be converted, we still find ourselves doing things from a selfish perspective. We constantly think about, what do people think of me? You know, me, me, me. <laughs> we, th we think we're the most important person. Once we step back from that, step outside and away from who we are and observe ourselves and say, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to think like he thinks. Our whole perspective changes. And that's what God has called us to and that's what these Feast of Tabernacles days are about. This is your chance for the next seven days to not think about yourself but to think of others. To be aware of the impact that you're having on the people who are walking up and down the streets of the town or the city that you're in. And to realize that you do impact on them. They do notice you. They will comment on our conduct and our behavior. So it's a pretty important responsibility. So we say again, <clears throat> the change in the animal's behavior means a total change in the nature of all relations. You know, that adversarial 
competitive way that we're accustomed to will change. It's going to be a total restoration. A total, what's the word here in verse 21? Yes, restoration. <clears throat> it says, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. You know, we mentioned there before about uh, Adam and Eve's choice and decision. You know, that, that choice and decision, if we go back to Genesis chapter 6, from the time that Adam and Eve made their choice, frankly, over a period of several hundred years, or more, several, really thousands of years it was, uh, that between the time of Adam and Eve's creation and the time of... Uh, of the flood. But here in Genesis 6 verse uh, 5 it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent, notice that, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <clears throat> it's interesting, in, in the margin it says, the, thought, the thoughts of the heart was only evil all the day. All day. In other words, God was not in the minds and the, and the thoughts of these people. The uh, <clears throat> Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, writing in the first century AD, uh, spoke about this period of time this way. He said, God determined to destroy the whole race of mankind and to make another race that should be pure from wickedness and cutting short their lives and making their years not so many as they formerly lived, but 120 only. He turned the dry land into sea, and thus were all these men destroyed, but Noah alone was saved. Now after the flood, not long after the flood, the descendants of the three sons of Noah, and in particular one of them by the name of Ham, uh, he led the people once again back into those old ways that uh, they had experienced before the flood. Notice how Josephus here in uh, book 1, chapter 4, verse, uh, or not verse, but <clears throat> section 1, about halfway through, it says, They did not obey God, for which reason they fell into calamities and were made sensible by experience of what sin they had been guilty. For when they flourished with a numerous youth, God admonished them again to send out colonies. But they, imagining the prosperity they enjoyed, was not derived from the favour of God, but supposing that their own power was the proper cause of their plentiful condition, it says, they did not obey him. No, they added to this their disobedience to the divine will. So, soon after the flood, God is facing the same problem that he had before. And there was one particular man, Nimrod, uh, who was descended from Ham. Notice what it says. Nimrod also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. Here's a, here's a man who was in total antipathy towards God for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. So here we have that negative, evil and wicked spirit back. <clears throat> so how does this affect us? 
Well, we're living at, at a period of time that Jesus Christ said was like the times of Noah. We are right back at this age and this time. And unless God should intervene, we would be destroyed. And so, as we come to the Feast of Tabernacles and consider this incredible opportunity that we have to know God's truth, I thought it might be helpful for us to, as I said, uh, weave the tapestry of the kingdom of God into a picture that will inspire us and encourage us and give us hope for the future. Let's start in Matthew chapter 24. You know, a lot of people think that when Jesus Christ returns, he's just going to, you know, you might say, rebuild some of the the, the destroyed buildings and, you know, basically uh, take over uh, the governments of this earth and maybe try and restore some, uh, you know, destroyed uh, electricity generation plants or whatever. Now, let me tell you, when Jesus Christ returns, it's going to be after total destruction. It's an interesting scripture in Matthew 24, verse 1. We always read it in in light of the fact that uh, this was Christ talking about the time. Uh, When you see this happen, then you know that uh, things are nigh and we're close to the end. And that's true. That is the purpose of what he said. But I think there's another, uh, you might say, interesting aspect to this. It's Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he said it's going to be totally wiped clear. The place where the temple's built, on the temple mount. Do you know that's symbolic? That's symbolic of the fact that Jesus Christ is not going to come back and reassemble the Herodian stones and rebuild a fourth or even a fifth temple. He's going to start from ground zero. He's going to start afresh. All that had gone before, Solomon's temple. The temple of Zerubbabel the temple of Herod and any other possible temple that might come. They're not going to stand. Jesus Christ is going to start from, from scratch, from the base. And that's symbolic of what's going to happen to the whole world. We're going to see that as we go through some of these scriptures. Jesus Christ is going to smash and destroy the old system thoroughly. He will not retain bits and pieces of the old world because there is nothing here that is redeemable because it's based on a wrong foundation. Notice uh, verse 30 of uh, Matthew 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Who? The elect. Who are they? Folks, you're looking at them. Look to the side. Look ahead. Look around you. These people who looked to be such normal, ordinary folk 
are future sons and daughters of the kingdom of God and in particular are a part of the first resurrection. <clears throat> so let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15 and see how this is all going to come together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. You remember, of course, when Jesus Christ is uh, going to return to this earth, he's going to be the first of the first fruits. And here it says, now this I say, verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, Brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Change from mortal to immortal. None of us can imagine what that's going to be like. But the very first thing is you will notice will be the clarity of mind, the sharpness of focus, the power of perception. The very first thing that you will be aware of is that no longer are you in a, a limited physical body, but there will be a vibrancy, there will be a, an awareness on a scale that you've never experienced before. Both mind and spirit, and now, and now spirit body, you're going to be sharply focused and aware. None of us can imagine but it's going to happen. Notice also here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These are scriptures that you've uh, heard on the Feast of Trumpets. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Oh, with the Lord, because he goes off to, up to heaven, does he? Does he rapture everyone away off to heaven? No, I think we know well enough, those of us who have been students of the Bible and have been called to an understanding of the great millennial reign of Christ, he is going to reign on the earth. Zechariah chapter 14 and in verse 3. Zechariah chapter 14 and in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the south, north, and half of it toward the south. So here we have this wonderful description of a, probably an earthquake that will uh, bring that about right at the very end of the, uh, the tribulation and the day of the Lord. 
<clears throat> and so Jesus Christ will come back to Jerusalem <clears throat> uh, to rule at this time. Notice Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 3. Zechariah chapter 8, just a few uh, pages before this. And here in verse 3 it says, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So here we see a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ establishing his government on earth. Now what will be the result of this? Notice verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. You know, one of the things that I think we all remember as we grew up, and even we still hear it, it's lunchtime at a school, and all the children are playing, and there's a particular sound that comes from the playground of a school, of all the children laughing and playing and and having a good time, feeling safe and secure. As they play hopscotch or they uh, dribble the basketball or they, um, uh, as we would do in Australia, kick, kick a, an Australian rules football around <laughs> and, and taking a mark. Now, you know, uh, for those of you in America and other parts of the world, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about, but Aussie rules is the biggest football uh, competition in, in Australia. And so people will be doing those, will be playing games and children will be, will be playing games in the streets in the world tomorrow. Notice it says in verse 6, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is, a marvelous, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. So God looks forward to that time when those children will be playing and laughing and having such a wonderful time. So now let's go to another scripture, this time Isaiah chapter 43. We're going to start to put together a picture, uh, a few more brushstrokes you might say, to the, the picture that we've been painting, or the, if, to, to stay with the analogy that we originally gave of a tapestry. Uh, let's uh, weave a few more threads into the tapestry so that we can see. So here in uh, <coughs> uh, Isaiah chapter 43... Isaiah chapter 43. You know, there are so many scriptures that we could read, and you're going to be hearing more as the, as the days go by uh, in sermonettes and sermons about the wonderful world tomorrow. Isaiah chapter 43, and starting in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name. You are mine. Now, let's set the scene here. We know that the peoples of northwestern Europe, uh, the United Kingdom on Ireland, and uh, the United States, uh, Australia, uh, the English people-speaking peoples of, uh, of South Africa, and also the Africana uh, people. Uh, we're all descended from the tribes of Israel. And so God says that he's going to bring us back from the different parts of the world. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that God should scatter Israel to the four corners of the world as a part of the, the, the blessings of Abraham. 
But then, because they're out there, he's now going to have to bring them, the remnant of them, back into Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel. And that's what it's, been, that's what it's talking about here. Notice verse 2. He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. This is a description of the remnant of Israel coming from all parts of the world. It's a description of people making their way from, well, let's take uh, New Zealand. And they'll be transported possibly uh, in captivity into, into Asia. And from there they will uh, find themselves uh, making their way uh, across uh, through Burma, maybe uh, across through uh, Bangladesh and uh, across through India into Afghanistan, Pakistan and Afghanistan, all the time crossing rivers, maybe even having to cross rivers of molten lava, because it says there, for you shall walk, it says through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Or maybe it will be bushfire or, well, a forest fire, where we call them bushfires. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honoured. And I have loved you, God says to Israel. <clears throat> Therefore I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. You know, what's west of Jerusalem? Well, the United States, Britain. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my, so my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. And who will lead Israel? Who will be their king? Who will be the one that leads them at that time? Ezekiel chapter 34. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 34. You know, I am giving this sermon in the uh, television studio in Charlotte, but I can imagine where this is being played in Marunding, in Mindanao, in the Philippines. Because I was there two years ago and I can see the little Filipino children listening, their parents taking notes or maybe Davao or up there in Baguio or across in Glentana in George, South Africa or in Kenya in places all across the United States and Canada. People who love God's Word. People who want this to be a reality. People who want to be a part of this great plan of salvation. And so here, as we read uh, in Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 23, it says, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them, 
I, the Lord, have spoken. Do you remember in the book of Acts it says that David is asleep and in his grave, in his tomb, and he has not ascended to the heavens. David's not up there strumming his harp in heaven. He is asleep. He's waiting for the resurrection. And when he's resurrected, Jesus Christ is going to come to him and install him as king over Israel. Amazing, amazing scripture. In fact, let's notice here as we uh, go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, that he's going to have some very, very good assistance. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Well, we need to read verse 27 first. Then Peter answered and said to him, Sir, or see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, remember that's that same word like restitution or restoration, regeneration, which when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Which apostle is going to judge which tribe? (laughs) Interesting. You know, there are some interesting traditions of uh, who went, which of the the, uh, apostles went to different places. We know that Andrew went to Scotland. Uh, We know that James went to to Spain. Peter wrote, wrote from Babylon, whether he spent his whole time there, we don't know. But, you know, I think about the people that I know in the church. I uh, pastored the Melbourne church for some time and uh, <clears throat> we've got a lot of Dutch people in the church around the world. Well, who's going to be the apostle over Zebulun? It's going to be interesting to see, but I can tell you something. If you are Dutch... I think of Mr. and Mrs. Peters uh, from Holland. They've got a wonderful opportunity to, to teach and to train and help Christ and David and the apostle who's over the Zebulonites. They've got the opportunity to teach their people. And so it is that someone will be over Dan. And so we've got uh, members in, in Ireland, Dan O'Carroll and... Uh, and uh, his family, and of course Mr. Henry Cooper, uh, and his wife Rosemary, they'll be involved with helping the people of Dan. Well, when you think about the kingdom of God, it's, it's an incredible opportunity for all of us. It really is. So let's have a look here as we read on. <coughs> in Jeremiah chapter 16, to how the Israelites are going to truly be repentant. Here in Jeremiah chapter 16, these people, you know, we could read so many scriptures, there's that beautiful scripture you probably know where it's, it's in, uh, in uh, Jeremiah 30 where it says, uh, you know, that uh, Israel will repent. Uh, Jeremiah 31 talks about Ephraim uh, you know, hitting himself on his thigh and uh, saying, I was unaccustomed to the yoke 
Uh, there are so many scriptures there that, uh, that are really quite inspiring. Uh, but here in Jeremiah chapter uh, 16, verse 19, let's notice this. Jeremiah chapter 16, and in verse 19. It says, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. Notice this. The Gentile shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. That's right, the Gentile nations, the people of Sri Lanka. I think of uh, when I was in Sri Lanka, there were the Jayawadnas and the Wickrama singers and all the other people with <laughs> those long Sri Lankan names. They're going to come to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and say, teach us, show us your way. We want to obey you. Notice what it said in that verse 19. The Gentiles shall come and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. They will repent of the fact that they used to bow down before idols and, and, and make obeisance to these idols. And they're going to say, we were just led astray, we were deceived. We want to learn from the true God. And so it is that people in the church who are from Sri Lanka will go back to that country and teach their, their own people. People from India, people from Cambodia, from all over the world, God is calling and training people right now in the church from those nations. I think one of the major reasons for the, the movements of people into the nations of Israel over the last 50 to 60 years has been to provide an opportunity for those people to come into the church. In the London church, we have people from the West Indies, we have people from Rwanda, uh, from the Congo. Uh, we have people from all over Africa. They're going to go back and teach God's people the right way and the true way. Now let's notice here in Isaiah chapter 30. If Israel's going to teach the Gentiles, who's going to teach Israel? Well, Isaiah chapter 30 gives us the answer. Isaiah chapter 30. Notice what it says here in verse 18. It says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears... He will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner any more. But your eyes shall see your teachers, and you shall, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. So whenever you turn to the right hand, or whenever you turn to the left, he says, This is what will happen. Someone will instruct and teach. And of course that will be us. We will be the teachers of the teachers. 
Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. A beautiful scripture here. Adding a little bit of red to the tapestry here. Beautiful color. Isaiah 25 verse 6. And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people, listen to this, a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all of the people. And the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. God's going to remove that veil of, of ignorance, that veil that has kept the whole world in total ignorance and, and superstition. That's going to be removed and God will show people the truth and the way and they will say, this makes sense. And they will think back to how they used to, you know, worship false gods and, and how they were aggressive and they were competitive in their old life. And they'll repent and they'll say, I want to go a different way, God. Teach us. Teach me your way. Notice verse, uh, uh, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a... St- I was going to try and sing it, but I don't know the tune. <laughs> but there'll be a tune to it in the world tomorrow. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. So here is a beautiful song that will be sung in the world tomorrow. So God does have a plan for each one of us, and we have a part to play. You know, the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 40. The last nine chapters are an enigma to most people, most Bible students. They cannot work out how this last nine chapters from Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 can fit into uh, the, 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 the framework of what they think is a heavenly uh, kingdom of God. But here we have it, Ezekiel chapter 40, and we're going to not read the first two chapters because they are a detailed description of the building of the temple. But once we come to chapter 43, uh, let's see here. Uh, actually, the first t- uh, three chapters we won't read. So we come to, to chapter 43. I want you to listen to this. This is a description of the temple once it's been built and the, they have the, the most important guest or the most important person arrive to take up his position. Let's read it. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. Afterwards he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. If you want to do an interesting study, throughout the Bible, the glory of the Lord, which in the Hebrew is called Shekinah, came and went depending on Israel's obedience and respect and love for God. Well, this will be the last time that the Shekinah or the glory of God will come to the temple of God. 
Notice what it says here in Ezekiel 43, in verse 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, which I saw like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city, the visions which were like the visions which I, saw, which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple, while a man stood beside me. Listen, this is Jesus Christ, and Ezekiel hears his words. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my, my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings or their high places." This is a great description of Jesus Christ entering the temple, the new temple that has been built for him in Jerusalem. Notice here uh, in verse um, uh, 6, we've just read that there. uh, We want to go through um, here in verse 10. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances. Dropping down to verse 12. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Then we go to uh, Ezekiel uh, chapter 48. Ezekiel chapter 48. And here we have a description of the, uh, actually, uh, chapter 47. And we have a description of what happens once Jesus Christ has been installed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. And notice it says, He brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. We drop down to verse 6. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were many, very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, going down into the valley and enters the sea. That's the Dead Sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Now the Dead Sea has been lying 1,200 feet below sea level with about six to seven times the concentration of the salt of the, of the ocean. And there are some primitive forms of life that can survive. But when the beautiful crystal clear water flows out from the throne of God in and down to the Dead Sea, and then it fills it up, it will be cleansed and healed. 
and then it will flow down through the Gulf of Ac- down to uh, through what's called the Araba, to the Gulf of Aqaba, and from there the Gulf of Aqaba down through the Red Sea into the Indian Ocean, and all the pollution and all the filth that is has poured out from the cities of India and and the and the East African coast, all of the the corals that have died because of the warming of the planet all of that will be healed the fish that have had cancers and lesions and have been destroyed by the the day of the Lord the plagues of the day of the Lord they will be healed and as that healing process goes on around through the Indian Ocean notice what he says uh, here in uh, verse 9 and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi. There are no fishermen at Engedi now. I've been to Engedi. It's a beautiful waterfall, fresh waterfall that comes down, flows into the Dead Sea, but there are no fish in the Dead Sea. But there will be fishermen where it's now dead. And to en they will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Thus says the Lord God, these are the borders by which they shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes. And it goes on to describe that. But you know, from the other side of the temple, the waters will flow from the west and they will flow down into the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean Sea will be cleansed. All of the pollution, once again, that has come from the river Nile through Egypt for years and years, the silting and the pollution, that the, you think of the heavy metals of mercury and, and, uh, and lead and others that have polluted the oceans of the, Medi- the, the waters of the Mediterranean Sea, they will be healed. And as the, those, that clean water flows through the Straits of Gibraltar and out into the Atlantic Ocean, so all the filth and rubbish, you know, that the, the oil tankers that have sunk and and left great deposits of sticky, gooey, black ooze on the ocean floor. That will be healed. The right ecology and the proper balance between the fish and the ocean and the seas and the, and the plants of the oceans will be restored and there will be oxygen brought back into the seas. Stocks of fish that were depleted, the cod, you know, the haddock, all of those fish of the Atlantic Ocean will be restored and a proper balance given back to the oceans. And so then, as the Atlantic Ocean is cleansed, so the waters will flow down around the Cape Horn of South America and the waters will flow up into the Pacific, but the waters from the other side have come around through the Southern Ocean, round, around uh, the south of, of, of the continent of Australia. And these two oceans... The waters will meet in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the whole oceans of the world will be cleansed and the fish will be clean. What a wonderful picture. And that's the same for agriculture. The lands will be healed. 
But more importantly, people's minds will be healed. People will have God's spirit. Satan will be put away. It'll be a new world. And you and I have the opportunity to be right there on the ground floor. Right at the very beginning. Now let's return to the the theme and the thought that we've had from the very beginning. Where will Jesus Christ be? Will he come at the beginning of the millennium and stay a few years and then go back to heaven? No. For 1,000 years, Jesus Christ is going to be on earth. Let me show you the final scripture for today. Do you remember I said Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 is a really wonderful section of scripture? Take time if you can during the feast to read this section. You'll find it absolutely fascinating. But what's really interesting is the very last scripture that we have here in the book of Ezekiel. The last verse of the last chapter says this, All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. This is talking about the the Jerusalem of that time and if we had time we would go into all of the the territories and the districts and the places and, and who will own this land and you know who will live here and who will live there. In fact, it's, it's quite interesting. If you go through uh, chapters, uh, I think it's uh, 46 and uh, you will, uh, 45 and 46, what you'll find is a description of what really is very much like Washington, D.C. It's a district of Columbia. It's a, a capital city where, that has been planned. Uh, you have in the, in the United States... Washington in Australia, we have the Australian Capital Territory in Brazil. They've got the region of the capital, Brasilia. So, and Paris is a beautifully planned city. Uh, <clears throat> and so Jerusalem will be planned. And it mentions all of that. But notice here, the very last verse of the last chapter of the book of Ezekiel. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city the name of the city of Jerusalem from that day shall be the Lord is there. What a wonderful thing. But you know what? We can actually consider this as a description of our position and our role. And that is that you and I also will be there. That's our future home. That's our future city. Jerusalem. That's where we're going to live. And we're going to be spirit beings. You might say, well, we're going to have to live in a house. And well, yeah, okay. You could be technical on that. But the point is, Jesus Christ is going to be located in Jerusalem. And that's where his government is going to be administered from. So time is getting short for all of us. Are you ready to teach and train? Are you ready to love and live God's way? Are you ready for the biggest job in your life? I'd like us to return to the very introduction and the beginning of the sermon. You might remember that I said, the reality will far surpass the expectation the hope will be exceeded by that 
which is yet to come. What is that expectation? What is that hope? It's the hope of our calling and of our position in the glorious kingdom of God.